Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Colin, I'm the family pastor here at the Kirk, and uh, I don't know if you're like me, but this series on the Holy Spirit has been really, really amazing. It has challenged my faith, it has opened my eyes, it's encouraged me uh, in all that God has to offer me in my own life and my walk with Him, and so I'm just so thankful uh, for the chance that we've had to, to look at God's Word, to talk about the Holy Spirit, and so today is my turn. Uh, I get to open the book of Acts to you and talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about the Spirit's power today. And so, wow. Verse 1 of Acts, Luke tells us, he's, he's referring back to his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and he tells us that that book was about all the things that Jesus began to do and to say. So he gives this whole record in the gospel of what Jesus began to do and to say. And I think he uses the word began there because Jesus is not done doing things and Jesus is not done speaking. In fact, the book of Acts is going to be all about the things that Jesus continues to do and say. The interesting thing, though, is that Jesus leaves in verse 9 of chapter 1 in the book of Acts. He ascends into heaven. And so we think about, okay, how does that play out? If this book is about all that Jesus continues to do and to say, but he's not here, how does that work? What's the game plan? And we get the game plan in about six verses here at the beginning of this book. And it's a power play. And it changes lives. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before I start... Officially, I would love to ask for the Lord's help. So would you pray with me? Lord, would you be so present as we open your word this morning? Would you speak through the power of your spirit? Regardless of what I say, I pray that you and your spirit would speak to hearts in this room. That they would know your power and have hope in you and your call on their lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see in the Gospels when we read them and we think about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Here's, what, here's a few things we know. Here's how it started out. Number one, he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Number two, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and spent 40 days there being tested and tempted. When he passed the test, by the way. Number three... Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verse 17, from that time on, as soon as he left the wilderness, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then here at the beginning of Acts, Luke tells us about the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And here are the three things we see here. Number one, Jesus spent 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. Number two, he told his disciples to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And number three, 
He repeated the Great Commission and then ascended into heaven. And so when you look at those two, squish them together and look at them, you look for themes. The two things that really stand out, number one, the kingdom of God, and number two, the Holy Spirit. I think you'll see as we talk today and look at his word that those two things really work hand in hand, the kingdom and the spirit. In fact, you see Jesus started teaching on the kingdom right at the beginning, and he was still teaching about the kingdom right before he left earth. His entire ministry was spent teaching and living out the kingdom of God, talking about it and showing people how it played out when he lived by the power of the Spirit. And the disciples, they had a front row view to it all. They got to hear it all. They got to see it all. They experienced it all. And yet, they still were a little bit confused on what he was talking about, on what it was all about, on what it was supposed to look like when the kingdom of God came and what it looked like to live it out. And we see a microcosm of that right here in this passage. If you look at verse 3, the second half of verse 3, it tells us again that he appeared to them for a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom. Sometimes we forget that this time passed after he was resurrected. There's this period of time that he was still on earth showing himself, proving that he was alive and teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And I wonder what that was like. I mean, I was just thinking about it this week. Because sometimes in scripture we get tons of detail. We get all kinds of information about what was said and what was done. And then sometimes something really important happens, like 40 days of Jesus teaching on the kingdom and we don't get any information at all. We don't know what he said. We don't know exactly what he talked about. Did he just, was it like his greatest hits of all the teachings he'd done and he was just reminding them of those things? Was it new teaching? We don't know. We just know he's teaching on the kingdom. And I would imagine that the disciples probably had mixed emotions about it. They were probably excited about what was to come, about what he was talking about. They were probably overwhelmed because he'd been given hints, at least, that he was leaving and they were going to be doing this moving forward. And so I can imagine it maybe went like this. I just thought of a few words that as they talked about it together over those 40 days, they're like, guys, this is going to be huge. This is going to be crazy. What? I can't believe he is going to use us to do this. And then there were probably moments where they were like, oh my gosh, this is going to be huge. This is going to be crazy. What? He wants to use us? Oh boy. And in the midst of that, we get this little snippet that Jesus tells him to hang out in Jerusalem for a few more days and wait. Hey guys, just hang out and wait. I've been telling you 40 days about what's about to happen, but now I want you to wait. You see it in verse 4. He says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So aren't they ready by now? Why does he want them to wait? I think it's because they still don't fully understand what they're supposed to do. And because they're not ready, really. They don't have all that they need. In fact, you can see their misunderstanding in verse 6 when they ask 
this question. He's been teaching for 40 days and they ask, Lord, okay, right now, is this the time? Has the time come when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're thinking kind of old school, the way it was, the promises that they had in the Old Testament and as God's people walking forward. And they expected, we know, reading even through the Gospels, the expectation of people following Jesus was at some point he was going to take over and he was going to restore power and they were going to be not under the rule of the Romans or anybody else at that point. But it was going to be new again for them and Israel would be in charge once more. And I think Jesus is very gracious and I think he's very patient. We don't get this strict rebuke here. It just tells us that he says, you know what, that's, that's not for you to know the time and the place and all of that. And he redirects their attention. They still had all these expectations about how the reign of the kingdom was going to play out, but it wasn't about returning power to Israel. It wasn't about any other earthly nation as we go through history and people are always expecting this is the time that God's going to take our thing, our group, our people, and he's going to make it about us. But that's not what he does. It's about something that was going to happen not in that moment, but over time gradually. And Jesus knew that some of them were passionate and they were excited, but that the passion and excitement would fade if they went out on their own power. And he knew that some of them were probably nervous and hesitant and scared, but that when he sent the Holy Spirit, that would not stop them from doing what he had called them to do. He had spent 40 years, or 43 years, plus 40 days, teaching on the Holy Spirit. He is planting seeds of the kingdom in their hearts. And I think he knew that when the Holy Spirit came, the Spirit would bring those seeds to life. And they would have everything that they needed in that moment to move forward. He knew the kingdom and the Spirit of God were connected. And so he turns their attention to this promise in verse 8. And verse 8 is the key verse, I think, for all of Acts It tells us all that's going to happen from this point forward. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus basically says, you think the kingdom is about earthly power. But I'm telling you, and you're about to find out yourselves that the kingdom of God is going to be built through the power that you receive when you get the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what's the power of the Holy Spirit all about? What does that even mean? Like, how much power does the Holy Spirit have? And they might have been more aware even than a lot of us, all the places that the Holy Spirit has worked and been at work in the history of God with his people I've heard people talk about, maybe you've experienced this yourself, any teachers in the room maybe, but all of us as kids, there was probably a moment at some point when you're like in elementary school and you walked into the grocery store and you saw a teacher pushing a cart down the aisle and you were like, what? I thought she lived at the school. I didn't think she ever left the school. Teachers eat? I mean... It's like your mind is kind of blown as a kid when you see somebody totally out of context. 
And for me, I felt a little bit like this as I started looking. I've heard it so many times, but you really start looking intentionally for something, and you're like, I was looking all through Scripture. I'm like, whoa, what? What are you doing here? Like, I thought you were only hanging out in Acts or in the New Testament. Like, you're in the Old Testament too? You were at work way, way back there? Here's the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you just a few examples. Creation. Way at the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it tells us that the earth was formless and it was dark and the waters and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Did you know the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of all things? Creation power. That the Spirit shows up and gives leadership abilities to people throughout the history of God's people walking with him, like Joshua and David and so many others. Read the stories, you'll see the Holy Spirit mentioned. The Spirit shows up and he gives physical power to someone like Samson to do what God called him to do. The Spirit shows up and gives words and wisdom to prophets all throughout Scripture to say what it is that God called them to say. It even tells us we get this cool story in Exodus 31 about this guy who's just like really creative. He's got these gifts, but God shows up and gives him his spirit to create all these ornament things for the tabernacle. Not by his own power, but by the power of the spirit. He was able to make what God wanted him to make. You see the spirit at work in John the Baptist and his father, Zechariah. And I had never thought about it as deeply as I have this week about how important the role of the Holy Spirit was in Jesus' life as he came and descended on him and his ministry started. And you just read through the Gospels and realize how much the Spirit is at work in the life and ministry of Jesus. That Jesus relied on the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit to do what he was doing. So surely we need the Holy Spirit, right? We cannot do what he calls us to do on our own. And if you need one more example about how awesome the power of the Holy Spirit is, we get this verse in Romans 8, 11. That just tells us, hey, you know what? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that spirit is in you. So the spirit that Jesus is telling his disciples that they're about to receive is a spirit that was involved in creation, that was involved all throughout the history of God with his people, that was involved in raising Christ from the dead, the power over death. This is a power that can overcome anything. And this is the power and the promise that he gives to his people. There is no greater power than the one that God offers through the Holy Spirit. There's not. There's nothing that can stand against it. And while the Holy Spirit has been at work, when Jesus ascends into heaven and the Spirit descends onto his disciples, it starts to work in new ways. Let me explain a couple of them. One is that in the past, in the Old Testament, it seems as you read that the Spirit would come down and it would, it would work in people's lives, but it was just kind of a temporary thing. It would come down and use them and work through them, and then it wasn't all the time. It, it wasn't with them all the time. And yet here it seems in the New Testament when we get the Spirit, there's these promises that the Spirit is now with us forever. We get this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Matthew 28, the first time that we see the Great Commission, that Jesus saying, you know what, I'm going to send you out and you're going to be my disciples and you're going to go out and share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And then he makes this promise at the end. And 
I will be with you always. But then he leaves. So how does that work? Because we get the Holy Spirit to be with us always. The Spirit and the Son are one. And so he keeps his promise. We have the power of Christ, the Spirit, and the Spirit living in us. He's with us forever. It's a promise. It's a seal. We talked about that earlier of our salvation. It's his promise of presence with his people. And the second thing is this idea of multiplication. Like during Jesus' ministry, it was Jesus working in the Spirit. And the disciples got to kind of go and see. And at certain times, he gave them authority and some power to go and try some things on their own. But now there's a switch that's going to take place. And in John chapter 16, he has this interesting thing. He says to the disciples, which I'm sure would have been a little bit hard to understand, but he actually tells them, he's trying to explain that he's leaving. And he actually tells them, hey, guys, you know what? It's going to be better for you when I leave. I'm sure they're like, what? How? That doesn't make any sense. And he basically says, the advocate, the spirit, will not come until I go. And so it's like Jesus said over these three years with the disciples, I want you to watch me model for you what it looks like to walk in the power of the Spirit, to live in the power of the Spirit, to teach and to heal and to do all the things that he did. And now he's coming to a point where he's saying, and now it's your turn. I'm giving you the power of my Spirit to do what I'm calling you to do, to follow my example, to live as best you can like me, but you have no hope of doing that without this gift that I'm about to give. He modeled it for them. And then he gives them the commission one more time. Again to verse 8, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now their experience was God's people were God's people. And it was a limited number of people. It was the nation of Israel. It was the Jewish people. And now things are changing. What Christ had done on the cross opens up the doors to everybody. And it's going to be a process. We'll even see as we walk through, as you read through Acts, that it's not easy to understand for them that, wait, God's, wait, this is, this good news is for not just the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. I mean, he tells them to go to Samaria for goodness sakes. They didn't like those people. But it's for everybody that he's calling them to go and share this good news with. And I think we can fall into the same kind of mindset sometimes. I mean, we think about these categories. It is, you can say, like, God calls me to the people here in my family. He calls me to the people in my church, the people that I work with, and it just kind of moves its way out. And sometimes we're called to go far off places. But in all the places he sends us, and as a church overall, he calls us to go everywhere and to be God's people and to share the good news. And sometimes we can be kind of short-sighted or closed-minded and we can think, you know what? All my focus and attention is just going to go to my family or all my focus is just going to go to my group of friends or to my school or to my work and forget that he's calling us 
continually to step outside of our comfort zone, to be open to the fact that he might be calling us to somebody else, to love somebody else, to reach somebody else, to share the good news with somebody else, to open our eyes, to widen our perspective. This verse 8 gives us the outline for the whole book. If you read through, you'll just see the sections of chapters. Like these chapters are about Jerusalem, then the next chapters are about Judea and Samaria, and then to Greece and Asia, and then what they consider the end of the world at that time, all the way to Rome, we see at the end God's people in Rome sharing the good news. And it's not just an outline for the book of Acts, it's an outline for us to be willing to open ourselves to the call of God on our lives wherever, wherever he may want us to go. I put it this way. God's kingdom plan is to fill his people with his Holy Spirit to transform us to be more like Jesus and to empower us to continue the work of Jesus in, the, in word and in deed so that the whole world can hear and see the good news of Jesus. I'm going to read that one more time. God's kingdom plan is to fill his people with his Holy Spirit and to transform us to be more like Jesus and to empower us to carry on the work of Jesus in word and in deed so that the whole world can hear and can see the good news of Jesus. And that sounds really good. That sounds like an awesome plan, and it is. So I have to ask myself this week, why is it when I hear that plan that I get butterflies in my stomach? That it makes me nervous. He's calling me, he's calling me to go. I kind of like to be comfortable. Some of that's not so comfortable. Most of us in the room, I'm just guessing, most of us, some of us are just like built for this stuff. Most of us in the room, I think, get nervous when we hear the Great Commission. We get nervous when we think about God wanting to use us to go out and change people's lives. It scares us at least a little bit. And I think I know why. I think it's because we can't do it. And we know it. Let me explain. We don't have the answers for all the questions that people might ask us. We don't know how to start the conversation sometimes. We don't know where to go. We don't know who to share with. We don't know how they might respond to us when we do. We're afraid that they might push back. We're afraid what people might think of us. It doesn't feel safe and it doesn't feel comfortable. Our lives are messy. We still have sin in our lives. How are we supposed to, as messed up, broken people, go out and share the good news of Jesus with others? And this would be really bad news if God's plan rested on our strength. It'd be really bad news if it was all about our smarts and our courage and our ability to do what he wants us to do, if it's about our righteousness, but his plan doesn't rest on us and our ability. But I think that's what makes us nervous when we are thinking about ourselves and what we have to offer. But God's MO, his mode of operation throughout all of history, was to take people who are weak, unsure, insecure, limited in skill and knowledge, fearful, anxious, sinful, rebellious, selfish, 
and so much more. And he takes them, and through the power of his spirit, he transforms their life, and he uses them to do powerfully incredible things in this world, to build his kingdom, to change lives. But it's never about them. I mean, think about it for a second. I'll give you just 30 seconds to think of one or two people from the Bible that you know of that did great things besides Jesus. Jesus doesn't count on this list. Just put someone in your head. Are we in good company if we feel like we're weak and we don't have everything that we need? Are we in good company if we feel like we might mess it up at some point? Because everybody I can think of had issues. Everybody I think can think of doubted themselves or, or turned the wrong way at some point or messed it up. And yet God used them to do powerful, incredible things. I think it's okay to admit that we're in good company with people that don't have it all together because we don't. We don't have it all together. And it's okay in the church to be honest with each other because it's true for all of us that that's where we are. But God does have it all together. And our weaknesses, there's two things we can do. We can either be so reliant on our own power, we, we overestimate our own abilities and power, and we start to think, okay, God's called me to go do something. I got this. I don't even need him. I have what I need. I can do this on my own. And that only lasts for so long. And I think most of us probably fall in the other category, although we might go back and forth. But we're just well aware of all the shortcomings that we have. And our, our attention is so focused on ourselves that we completely underestimate the power of God. We just ignore the fact that he's got this power that I'm talking about through his Holy Spirit that he offers to us in our life to come in. And it's a power that can overcome any shortcoming that we may have. God's power is made perfect in weakness. So when we realize we've got weakness, we realize he's called us to do something and we just say, I don't know. I don't know that I've got the gifting to do that. I don't know that I even have the passion to do that. But Lord, you're calling me to do that and I want to obey you. So would you please give me what I need? to do it. And when we do that, his power will be made perfect. And not that it's always easy, but I think when we put ourselves in that place, that's what God wants to do. So I think he's going to do it. I think he will give us what we need to do, what he calls us to do. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is all about transforming people. That's the story we see through all of scripture. He changes lives. He takes messed up things and he makes them whole. He takes broken things and he fixes them. He takes lost people and he draws them close and helps them find their way. And part of that transformation process is that he wants to take our words and he wants to take our deeds, just as we saw at the beginning. The, the gospel was about all Jesus did and all that he said. And so those two things are important. And part of the transformation process is that he takes those things in our life and he wants to sync them up so that they're pointed in the same direction, so that they're pointed at Jesus, so that they're pointed at the kingdom of God. I was trying to imagine this week like a good example, and all I could think of was a, a salesman coming to my door. This isn't a real story, but just imagine. And uh, let's just say they're selling Wi-Fi service. And the guy starts his sales pitch, and he's talking all about his service. I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And then I look down, and I realize he's wearing, like, the uniform of his competitor. 
Like, I think if that happened, we're like, what? This doesn't make any sense. And I think I would very quickly not really trust anything that he was saying. Like, this doesn't make sense. He's trying to sell me one thing. He works for the other. I don't think I'm buying it. And when we think about our, the call in our lives to be witnesses to the world, we have our words and we have our deeds. And if they don't match up, if we go out into the world and we say, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about his grace. I want to tell you about the power that he has to change lives and to heal things. And if you give your life to him and walk the path that he calls you to, there's, there's life. The best possible life is offered there. But then the uniform we're wearing, the life we're living, is like saying something totally different. I don't think people are going to buy it. They were saying Jesus is the way to go, but that, they look at our life and they go, well, I mean, there's a couple days of the week that you're going that way, but there's other days I see you going a totally different way. And we know we've got brokenness there. We know there's areas of our life, probably all of us, where we need some help. Sinking those things up. And the good news is the power of the Holy Spirit can help. Whatever it is that's in your head right now, the place where you need help, I'm telling you, the power of the Spirit can transform that situation, that relationship, that addiction, that whatever it may be, that mindset, to help you walk the way that he wants you to walk so that your life and your testimony match. And that people will look at you and see your life and hear your words and think, that's what I want. The change they're saying Jesus offers is the same change that I'm seeing in their life. But we've got to let him have stuff. We've got to give those things away and stop trying by our own power to take care of them, to change them ourselves. And how do we do it? I've been in this Bible study with some guys this year, and not only there, but about six other places, John 15 keeps coming up. The whole idea of abiding, abiding with Christ, resting in Christ, being in his word, having conversation with him. And I keep thinking about like the picture it gives us in John 15 is the vine and the branches tells us that if we're connected to the vine, we're the branches, Jesus is the vine. If we're connected, that's where we bear fruit. That's when we bear fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So if we're wanting to bear fruit, we need to be abiding. But it just hit me this week, I think, really most profoundly, that what's happening between the vine and the branches, there's life flowing. And I knew that too, but it just hit me like the Holy Spirit's involved here. It's his word flowing into us. But it's the Spirit of God being given to us to sustain us, to empower us, to give us what we need when we abide, when we trust. And so the question is, are we abiding? And if we're not abiding and we're frustrated that things aren't changing or we don't have what we need to do what he's asking us to do, that might be a good place to start. It's just getting some time with the Lord and trying to figure out a pattern in our life where we spend more time just trusting him it's not about doing extra work it's about just sitting with him resting in his arms trusting him 
And I think as we abide, he's going to sink up our words and our deeds, and we're going to have more of a witness. I was reading a lot of stuff this week, and one I was just reading a little bit in a book by Francis Chan called Forgotten God. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And he has this quote. He said, I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I want people to look at my life and know that I could not do this by my own power. I want to live in such a way that I am desperate for him to come through. And I think to be feeling that means that we have to risk. We have to set our sights and our lives on something that's bigger than we know we can accomplish. Our tendency, I'm going to speak for myself now. My tendency is to say, okay, I'm going to set some goals for this year and I'm going to put them like right on the edge of what I think I can do. What feels kind of safe? I mean, maybe a tiny bit risky, but like no one's going to say anything if I don't get there. And I think what he's calling us to do is say, you know what, I'm going to set my goals somewhere where there's no way I could possibly do that on my own without the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life. And I want to be desperate every single morning when I wake up that if I'm going to live the way he calls me to live today, I cannot do it without him. I cannot do it without abiding. I cannot do it without opening my life to his power and trusting in him to show up and do what he wants to do. If he does not show up, I will fail miserably. That's a scary place to put yourself. And I haven't done that for most of my life. But I feel like the Spirit's saying to me as I prepare this week, you need to step out and put yourself there and trust me and see what I do. Because I think that's when we do that in the abiding we see stuff start to happen. And I think watching the news this week and looking at what's happening at some college campuses across our nation where you see abiding happening and revival breaking out, and it's not even for the sake of that thing happening. The cool thing is that whenever that ends, the whole point of it is that you've got changed college students who are ready to go out into the world and live completely different lives wherever they go because of what they've experienced in this abiding moment with the Lord and with each other. And I think that's what he wants to do in us. That's what he wants to do in us as people of God in this place, in this church, is to learn to abide together with him and encourage each other to live and to walk differently. And the last thing I would say, while we may want to put limits on the Lord, one I would say, please don't put on him and on the power of the Spirit is you're never too young and you're never too old for the Spirit of God to work powerfully through your life. While you have breath in your lungs, the Spirit of God can do incredible things through you. So don't ever think, my time hasn't yet come or my time is over because it's just not true. I mean, there were some really old people in the Bible that did some crazy things when you think about it like hundreds of years old. So nobody's there yet, I don't think, in this room. Anyway, I want to pray for us. Lord, your plan is all about your kingdom and it's all about your power. And it's about our availability and willingness to let go and to surrender and to give things away to you that we can't handle on our own and to trust you with our lives and to watch you work and to find joy in it. And so I pray this morning in this room and those watching online, if 
there's something in us that's holding us back, if there's fear, if there's something that just seems too big, if there's something that we've been struggling with for decades, but we've never fully given it to you, we've always been trying to handle it on our own, I pray that this might be the day that we let go. That you would take it and that we would experience the incredible transforming power of your Holy Spirit so that our lives and our words sync up. That as you send us into the world, people would see something different. They would see a power that they need and that they want. May it be so, Lord, for your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.